Well, while Ricky deals with not having feet, um, as he mentioned, we have the privilege today of a missions-focused Sunday. We try to plan one at least quarterly, and uh, the Hunts let us know that they were going to be coming to town, and so Phil and Lori and Tamron and Corbin are here with us, so you can wave from back there, guys, and uh, it's our pleasure to have them with us. It's exciting to have them with us as, as they were singing the song, Jesus, Thank You. Um, I'm sure that's their testimony just from over the years. I was talking with Phil um, before the first service, and 30 years they've uh, been on the field, and we've been supporting them for all that time, as, as far as we could recall. <laughs> um, Phil recalls more than I can, because I've only been here 10. Um, but just thankful to have them with us. Um, we, uh, as a church, one of our values is mentorships. Disciples make disciples who make disciples. And if you get their updates, you see that happening in Zambia through Central Africa Baptist University, through Keatway Church, through multiple things that they have going on. Believers are being made. People are putting their trust in Jesus Christ. They're being matured, and they're being equipped to go out and plant churches, share the gospel with others. And to that we say, Jesus, thank you. It's his work. So... Phil, please come. He's going to share an update with us and then preach God's word to us this morning. It's great to have you guys with us. All right, well, it's a a wonderful blessing to be back home at our home church. And uh, yeah, 30 years, it's like that, uh, that number sounds too big to be true. Um, I feel much younger, younger than that. I am much younger than that, but uh, so grateful for God's kindness and goodness, and I do want <clears throat> to share with you an update on um, a little bit, a partial update on, on some of the things that are going on. Um, we, uh, we're back in the States for eight weeks, and Ashlyn was supposed to have graduated from BJ in 2020, but of course, you know what 2020 was, so she's graduating this, uh, this coming Friday, and so we'll be able to celebrate with her. And then two weeks later, uh, Colin will graduate from Madonna University with a degree in sign language interpretation. And, um, and then in June, June 12th, Colin and Melissa get married out in Detroit. So we have a lot of family stuff going on. And in and around and through that is the ministry in churches. And, and so we're, we're very grateful for, for that. We, as, as Pastor Dave said, we have, we've only got two left at the table at home. Uh, Tamron and Corbin, and so we hope to get to meet you right after the service. We'll be outside. We'd love to chat with you. Africa, uh, of course, we've been ministering in Africa and Zambia, but Africa as a whole, fastest urbanizing continent in the world, Uh, beautiful cities developing, upscale shopping malls, and yet um, also just the level of difficulty that many people face as they seek to live, uh, lacking the basic resources of life. Many countries in our area of Africa, which is um, the, the central part and down towards the south, sub-Sahara, uh, boasts of a majority Christian population, but in reality, much of that is the false prosperity gospel that continues to expand and influence across the continent. Um, we, we still are dealing with uh, African traditional religious values and systems that are, that are still a, a major player um, in the various cultures on our continent. And of course, um, uh, when you go north on the continent, you're into the Islamic-controlled uh, areas of, of Africa. About 1.3, maybe closer to 1.4 billion people on our continent now, and um, <clears throat> we expect the, 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 that we, we will be doubling in size, uh, to about 2.6 billion population over the next 30 years. Included in that is 987 identified groups of people that are classified as unreached. And um, that's, that's equivalent to about 380 million people, that's bigger than the size of the United States population-wise, of people on our continent who have never heard of Christ and that are not being reached, effectively reached, through any local uh, church effort. And the question is, what do we do about this, and w- what can be done to reach these um, 987 uh, 
people groups, 380 million people. And one of the answers to that is what the Lord is choosing to do at Central Africa Baptist University. And um, uh, we are seeking to train the next generation of servant leaders in Africa for Great Commission Living. And as of February this year, we now have 143 um, men and some women who have graduated who are out serving the Lord um, in ministry across the continent, and in some cases, even around the world. Um, this, is, uh, this is Jennifer uh, Chikonde. And uh, years ago, Tom Hovius was out with us for the opening of Faith Children's Village. Jennifer was there that day because she was one of the original seven children um, at FCV. And Merrimack has had, historically, a, a, real, a real part of this uh, orphan ministry from before the beginning. In, in, and, um, and so this was Jennifer. Uh, this picture was taken back in, in 2004. Um, this is Jennifer last year when she graduated from Central Africa Baptist University with her diploma in primary education. Jennifer came to know Christ her Savior at FCV, grew in the Lord, came over to the university after she finished, and is now a trained teacher recognized by the government of Zambia. Um, this is Salim, and you might note from the name, uh, his background and his family, uh, there is a Muslim uh, influence and background there. So this is Salim. Uh, Salim came to know the Lord through the ministry of Faith Baptist Church in Kwacha Township. Faith Baptist Church Kwacha was one of the churches planted in the earlier years out of Riverside. And uh, he was one to Christ, discipled by Pius Chanda, grew in the Lord, and eventually the church sponsored him to come to CABU. And uh, he graduated a year ago, and um, Pius, who is the missionary church planter, uh, stepped aside out of that work after 15 years of faithful service, and the church has called Salim to be their pastor. Um, last year, we rejoiced because Salim and Jennifer um, were married, and so they are serving the Lord together um, in, this, in this church and in this church plant. So what, what a blessing to see ministry go full circle in that, in that way. Um, not only are we involved at, at at, um, at, at the university, but also uh, Kitwe Church, which is the, the latest church plant that we're personally involved with. Uh, we started the Bible study in 2014, uh, organized as a church in, 20, in 2015. Uh, three weeks ago, we were able to hold a baptism service. Uh, this is a friend of mine, Boya, uh, who accepted Christ last year, and his uh, his wife also accepted Christ, and both of them were baptized, amongst others, uh, there at Kitwe Church. Um, some of the connections to see what God is, God is doing. This is, this is Mohammed Ismail. Mohammed is from, originally from the Darfur in, in western Sudan. Um, he was a Muslim scholar, uh, went to university in South Sudan, where he came in contact with Christians and began to read a Bible um, he told me the first time that he actually touched the Bible, he felt nauseous and was sick to his stomach because for all of his life, he told them, he was told that that was an evil book. And, uh, but he began to read the Bible and God began to convict his heart and he accepted Christ as his savior and um, eventually came down to CABU and was trained for ministry. And uh, this last year end went back to Khartoum where he is church planting. This was his ordination service last month. Faith Baptist Church of Riverside, which is the original church that we were involved with when we first went to Kitwe, um, ascending him as a missionary to Khartoum for church planting. And Kitwe Church is voted two weeks ago to financially partner with the Riverside Church to help send him to plant a, a church, and so he is going to be up there in the Sudan, in the, in the, he is there in the city of Khartoum. Two weeks ago, maybe three now, um, they just, he just had a baptism service and baptized the first six converts in that outreach in Khartoum. This is the Juma family, Emmanuel and Regina Juma, they are from South Sudan, and um, in January, uh, so he also came to CABU, and then was an intern at Kitwe Church. And in January, we voted as a church to, um, uh, to be the sending church for the Juma family 
to Juba, South Sudan, and that's uh, down there at the bottom, uh, the city of Juba. Please be in prayer because yesterday, uh, Pastor Hector and Emmanuel both flew into uh, Juba, South Sudan. They arrived yesterday, and they'll be there for the week doing a survey of the city, trying to see where the church should be planted and get an idea of what the costs are involved in that, with the goal that Emmanuel, by the end of this year, with his family, will move into South Sudan to begin this uh, church planting exercise. So you kind of see that what God's doing at the university and what God's doing in the church, it just kind of all uh, comes together and flows uh, by God's grace. It's just so exciting to see what God is doing. Um, it costs us $4,000 per student per year to have one of these guys in the um, accredited degree program. This was a week ago Thursday after chapel. Uh, every, every Thursday we break down, we meet in mentorship groups on campus. Um, so every faculty and staff member has two or three students that they hang out with for the entire year. Um, of course, the Bible program, uh, education program for primary education, we're offering continuing education for pastors by way of block classes. We had to cancel these last year, but we have restarted them this year. Uh, we just had two more weeks of chaplaincy training. The last two weeks on our campus had another gr good group of men and women in for that. Um, the sign language and deaf studies program is advancing. And then uh, theological studies by extension is where we are seeking to go off campus and meet with cohorts of pastors in various places across the region, actually across Africa. We now have 2,000, over 2,000 pastors enrolled in these, in these programs. This was the class last week in Dolomey, uh, Kenya. And uh, John Jiroge, one of our uh, graduates who is pastoring uh, up in that region of Kenya, was the lecturer. And this was the class that, that met. This, uh, this photo was taken Friday afternoon. Um, one of the things for prayer, uh, with the increase in our enrollment, the cost per student is actually coming down a little bit, but uh, about 2,000 of the cost is covered through tuition and scholarships, which leaves us uh, about 2,000 per student that has to be raised, and so you can pray with us that the Lord would meet this need uh, for the year that we are in. So let me just conclude with a couple of prayer requests, of course the student funding uh, that's needed. The TSE, Theological Studies by, tra uh, by Extension, training modules that are taking place. We have 62 weeks of training in various places across Africa this year. And so just pray with us about that. And then also this past year, we have been in the midst of uh, campus construction um, with the growth of the university and the running out of space. So just pray with us that, uh, for, this, for this project and that it will come to an end soon. And, and, be, and be completed. There's a, email addre uh, a website address. If you'd like some more information, you can look that up after the service. So afterwards, our family, I'll be outside out there in the, in the car park, and I hope that many of you will take just a few minutes and stop and say hi. I'd love to chat with you and give you further information. But just again, wanted to say to you, thank you for um, being our, our home church and being our family. And uh, we are very, very grateful uh, to, to you. Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the book of Jonah. I want to speak to you this morning on this subject, the heart of God towards sinners. The heart of God towards sinners. The book of Jonah, chapter number one. Now, when I, when I mentioned the word Jonah, if you were like me, most likely what you immediately thought of was a whale, right? Jonah and the whale. I mean, uh, that, that's that's kind of what we think about, and yet this is a story, and this story is not about a whale swallowing a man. This is a story about a God whose heart beats with love for the nations. This morning, I want you to see the heart of God for the work of God that moves the hand of God to accomplish the mission of God. God is a God of mercy and compassion. And he is advancing his mission of delivering sinners from condemnation. And, and you saw examples of that in a few of the, of, the, of the people that you met here just a moment ago. People like Muhammad and, and, and Salim and Jennifer. God is at work delivering sinners 
from condemnation and giving them his life. This mission of God that God is ever at work doing is God's work in reconciling sinful humanity, human beings, unto himself. This mission is rooted in a man knowing the glory of God in the person or in the face of Jesus Christ. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, we come to the, this little book. It's the prophet Jonah. But how do we get here? How are we to understand the story, which is the message, the story of Jonah? And I think to do that, it's helpful for us to go back and remember what got us to Jonah. What gets us to a city like Nineveh? What gets us as a people to this place? And I think to go back, we, we remember that, that it wasn't always that way. God, in his creative work in Genesis chapter number 1 and chapter 2, God created the world and crowned that creation with man, Adam and Eve. And this is a man that is created in the image of God. In fact, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, in the image of God he created them, male and female. This is a unique creation. Someone who is created in his own image. And, and there are some implications to this, right? Being created in the image of God, unlike the animals and the plants. And that is, the, there's a couple of implications. One being, it, it means that, that because we are created in the image of God, that, that every human being is significant to God because God created them. And the sad reality is this, that over and over again, people choose to connect to idols in their hearts rather than connect to the one who created them in his image. There's also the implication of being created in the image of God is that we have a purpose, right? We, we have a purpose for living. And ultimately, God's purpose for his creation that was created in his image is that we are to glorify God. And imperfection in the garden, that would have looked like delighting in him and exercising dominion over creation and being fruitful and multiplying. Right? We see that in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And it would have all been great if it had just continued that way. But we quickly come to Genesis chapter number 3 and we see that God's original creation has been corrupted. Adam's deliberate choice to disobey God plunged the human race into sin. And the effects of sin could be immediately seen. You may recall Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, God, who, who every, every evening since the dawn of creation has come down into this beautiful garden to walk and talk and have fellowship with man. But on this day, as he walks through the garden, Adam and Eve are hiding behind the bushes, behind the trees. They're hiding from God in this garden. Why? Because, because something has happened that has broken their fellowship with God. And, and, and a colossal cover-up has begun. And humans have been running and hiding and pretending that they are righteous ever since. I mean, remember when, when God comes to Adam and, and says, where are you? And Adam finally identifies himself and they begin this, this dialogue. Do you, do you remember what, what they began to do? They, they began to, to argue their own righteousness. Well, well, God, it's actually not my fault. It's her fault. And she's quick to say, it's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. In other words, I don't want to take any personal responsibility for my sin or the effects of my sin. Rather, I'm going to point at my circumstances or I'm going to point at someone else, my environment perhaps. We see this going on all around us in our, in our culture and around the world. Man seeking to justify their own sinful 
longings and desires and responses by pointing to the fact that, that they are in poverty or that they have been oppressed or repressed. So we point to other things in a sense of, of hoping that by pointing the finger of blame somewhere else, we can justify ourselves in our own thinking before God. And it is in that context that God points to the first promise of salvation. It would become known as the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when God says to them, I will put enmity, be speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The drama unfolds with the first brother murdering his twin. And the wickedness of men continues to ferment and grow until finally God rains down judgment through a global flood. But even then, God again points to his mission with a promise that, that in Genesis 9.27 that God would dwell in the tents of Shem. A preview that God's mission would be carried out through a particular people. And then we come to Genesis 11. It becomes evident that Adam's sin and rebellion has affected not only a few individuals, but also encompassed entire nations. Society itself has been affected by the fall. And a unified race of people have come together to overthrow God and to set up a system of worship for themselves. After the fall... Humankind in their search for significance, the significance of being created in the image of God, their creator. People begin to build adulterous systems designed to create a name for themselves rather than God. This is, of course, exemplified in the story of the Tower of Babel. And what does God do? God comes down and he divides a people not by skin color. He divides a people by languages and ultimately by cultures. And this division was a barrier to protect against the prospect of unchecked sin made possible by a common language. And so God scatters mankind across the, the world and mixes up all of the languages. And there, out of that dynamic, in, in Genesis chapter 11, you have the outworking or the seed for all of the various cultures of the world that we see today. And then Genesis chapter 12, the focus now shifts to one man, his name is Abraham. It is through Abraham that God said he would bring a blessing upon all the nations, verses 1 through 3. Through a chosen people, God would continue his mission. God ratifies his covenant with Abraham. And then we come to Genesis, the rest of Genesis through Deuteronomy. We call it the Law of Moses. We see that God raised up Moses to deliver this new nation, Israel, out of the womb of Egypt and to lead them to the land that God had promised to Abraham. And, and here now was a people through whom God said that he would reflect his glory among the nations. And though Moses gave the people God's law, he also gave them a place. Remember the, the tabernacle in the wilderness and ultimately the temple in Jerusalem. And the sacrificial system that was put into place. As you read through your Bibles each year, you come to all of those texts, you get into Leviticus and, and there's all this blood. I mean, there's like, there's like bulls dying and sheep dying and goats dying and turtle doves dying and everything's dying. And you've got to collect the blood and put it on the altar and put it on the edge of your ear and you've got to pour it here and you've got to do it there. And you walk away from that and you're like, you know what? There, there's something terrible that has happened. The wages of sin is death. This sacrificial system was also a reminder that God was to one day send the perfect Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world, John 1.29. 
And then as you read through, you come now to the, to the prophets. The prophets told of a day when God's redemptive work would flow past the boundaries of the nation of Israel and would encompass the entire world. Messiah would come. And though, though he would be rejected by Israel, he would accomplish God's mission. God's mission of redemption so that whosoever believes in him, whether they are Jew or Gentile, they would not perish, but they would be granted eternal life with God forever. Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all, you, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And now we find ourselves in the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet in Israel. He was serving under the, under the reign of King Jeroboam II, and we think he probably ministered for around 50 years. Jeroboam's reign was one of economic prosperity and national prominence, restored many of the national boundaries that had been lost through various wars. But as is the case today, so it was then. Often, great prosperity leads to rejection of God and idolatry. And the reign of Jeroboam was a time in the history of Israel of great spiritual decay. The nation and her leaders were quickly moving away from God into idolatry. And God comes to Jonah with a message and a commission and sends him to Nineveh. Now, it's helpful as we read this story to remember that, that Nineveh is the capital of the nation of Assyria. Assyria was a rising world power in Jonah's day. And Nineveh, the city itself, was located near present-day Mosul, Iraq. Nineveh was known for many things. It was known for its, its beautiful hanging gardens, its parks. Nineveh had an aqueduct that brought fresh water into the city, and it had a very large population of 120,000-plus people. It was an amazing city. But the Assyrians were also known for their cruelty and their brutality to the nations that they conquered. They were a wicked people. They were a wicked regime. For instance, when Shennacherib conquered Lachish, the leading men were held down and their tongues were pulled out by the roots. They would stretch and tie victims to pegs while an executioner with a razor-sharp knife skinned the people alive. And then they would strip the skin off their victims and they would tack it on the walls of the city. They were known for sharpening the end of poles to a razor-sharp point and thrusting it up through the backside of a victim while they were alive, and the point would protrude out the top of their chest around their neck, and they would set the rising victim in a, on the pole in a hole along the city street. When they would conquer a city, they would kill all the children so they would not have to take care of them. In fact, Micah, ch uh, Nahum, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the prophet Nahum, speaking of Nineveh, said, Behold, it is a bloody city. And Jonah knew all of this. Not only did Jonah know the reputation of the, of the Assyrians, but he knew that, that, that prophetically that one day this same nation of Assyria would march against his own people and would conquer Israel. And he hated these people. He wanted God's judgment to fall upon these people. And though Jonah is listed as one of the minor prophets, it contains no prophecy. Very odd. Jonah is a story. And the story is the message. Look at the message. 
Jonah chapter 1. Look at verse 1. I hope you have your Bibles. I want you to follow along. Jonah 1.1. 1, 1. Here's the message. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and they each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, he'd gone down into the innermost part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's blood. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, has done as it pleased you. So... They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days! and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them 
not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah is exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for a plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? You see, God's purpose for Israel is exposed in this book. God wants his people to rediscover the reality of his love and concern for the whole world. And he wants them to understand their role in carrying out that concern. Listen, friends, God's heart beats for sinners. I mean, John 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. People do not instinctively or naturally worship the true God. People of this world, they are wicked and they are selfish. They do not care about God or His will or His word. They are violently opposed to God. They do not bow before God's law. And therefore, they are under the condemnation of God's law. Sinners will face God's judgment. Do you understand that? And in the midst of these sinners, right there, right down, in the trenches, in the midst of these sinners that are rejecting God and justifying their own unrighteousness, these vile, wicked sinners, right there in the midst of them, God strategically places his redeemed messengers. God has set his people in families, local communities, companies, towns, and cities. God has his prophets, men and women, and young people that he puts in these places, and they are to live and speak of the wondrous glories of God. They are commanded to tell everyone the good news that Jesus saves. Okay, we looked at the message already, but I want to go back to it. And in, as a wrap up, I want, to, I want you to see, I want to just point out three things. Three truths about the heart of God towards sinners. We've already read it. Let me just show it to you. Number one, God is compassionate. Look at chapter 4. Look at verse 11. 
And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. This is, this is Jonah's prayer. He's angry. And he says, this is why I ran the other way. This is why I didn't want to go. Because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew it, God. I knew your character. I knew you would respond this way. I knew you would forgive them. I knew you would have mercy. And I don't want you to have mercy on these people. Number one, God is merciful. God is merciful, full of compassion. God is compassionate. No matter how wicked and how sinful, God will forgive all those who hear the message of the gospel and who repent of their sins and believe in him. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God is compassionate. God's compassion for the people of the nations moved him to send his servant to proclaim his message. Because of God's compassion for the world, your love for God will make you available and willing to proclaim his message to the world. You see, God is willing to spare Nineveh, chapter 3, verse 10. But do you understand that for God to spare this wicked nation of Nineveh to be able to forgive them, for God to be able to spare Nineveh meant that he could not spare his own son. That God had to execute and crucify and put to death his own son in order to offer forgiveness to this wicked nation of Nineveh. He's a God of compassion. God's love for sinners moved him to send his own son, Jesus Christ, to deliver them from sin by becoming the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. 1 John 2, 2. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 9, as he sees the multitudes come over the hill towards him, he lifts up his eyes, and the Bible says that Jesus, he was moved with compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Three things about the heart of God towards sinners. Number one, God is compassionate. Number two, God is sovereign. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Notice, salvation belongs to the Lord. God will carry out his mission to the world. His glory will be proclaimed among the nations. God is sovereign in the execution of his mission. And how does, he, how does he sovereignly carry out this mission? He uses men to warn men of their wickedness and invite them to believe in God for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's his method. How are those people outside these doors going to know of the mercy and the salvation of God? Because he has people inside this building who are on mission for him. And we need to just put off all of the noise, all of the politics, all the stuff that's going on. God is sovereign, and he calls his men and his women to go and proclaim the gospel. That's his mission, and he's sovereign in it. Did you see as we read the story that God sovereignly controls all resources? To fulfill his purpose among men. Chapter 1, he controls a storm. He controls heathen sailors. He controls a giant fish. He controls a plant, a worm, and a hot wind. 
God is sovereign and he controls all things to carry out his mission. He's in control of malaria. He's in control of every mosquito in Zambia. By the way, malaria still kills more people than any other other thing in, in Africa, including COVID. God's in control. He controls the mosquitoes. God controls COVID-19. Everything is controlled by God because he is sovereign and he has a mission and he has commissioned us to engage in that mission. He's sovereign. Everything is at his disposal. So God is compassionate, God is sovereign, but there's a third thing that we see in this, in this story. God is patient. Aren't you glad of that? God is patient and bears with the exceeding sinfulness of men for a long time. You see that again in verse, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. God is patient with sinners. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not only is he patient with sinners, but you see, God is patient with his minister. You know, when his servants do not share his love and do not obey his will, God patiently hurls whatever is necessary into their lives to correct their rebellion, to soften their hard hearts, and to bring them back to the place of faithful service. I mean, look at chapter 1, verse 4. Go to Nineveh. He heads the opposite direction, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty storm on the sea so that the ship was threatened to break up. And God patiently reminds us of our calling. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And so now he's been been thrown into the ocean. He's been swallowed by a fish three days and three nights. The the fish now vomits him out on dry land. Then the word of the Lord, 3-1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. And perhaps this morning God is reminding you of your calling. Of God's commission to his mission. Beginning right where you are. And maybe for somebody here today, maybe, maybe for some of you here today, you, you actually have sensed the, the gifting and the callings that God has actually been calling you and speaking to you and he wants to move you to some other place. He wants to send you from the comfort of Israel to the, to the pagan nation of Assyria to tell them the, the glorious message of the life-changing gospel. You say, what must I do? If you're here and you're a sinner, you're unregenerate, you've never never been gloriously saved, You've, you've never been redeemed, you've never been forgiven of your sin and made a new creation in Christ Jesus, that's not your reality thus far in your in your human existence. You're still in your trespasses, you're still in your sin, you're still guilty before God. You're still under his divine wrath and judgment. And yet you say, what must I do? Repent of your evil ways like these people of Nineveh did and run to Jesus. He will welcome you. He will cleanse you from your sin. He will free you from your guilt. And he will give you an eternal future and a hope. Run to Jesus this morning. What about the saints that are here this morning? What must I do? And I think there's two 
statements to take away. Number one, get a right attitude towards God's calling. Let me ask you, Christian, are you running from God's will in some area of your life? Get it right. And number two, get a right affection towards the objects of God's mercy. Are you rejecting God's love? Do you you instead harbor indifference or, or perhaps even hatred towards those that God loves? Get it right. Make it right. Perhaps God's calling you to be a foreign missionary, to surrender your heart and your life, and to go with the gospel to one of these unreached areas of our world. Whatever it is, God's just going to keep patiently coming back. And in the meantime, there's storms and whales and worms and plants. Whatever it takes to bring us into conformity to the will of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this day, in this hour, that we might be humbly submitted to you. Not only to hear your calling, not only to hear a reminder of what your mission is for us, but that our hearts would be warmed to embrace you and thus embrace the mission that you have given to each one of us. You have a heart of love towards sinners, and there are many sinners who do not know anything about you yet. People both near and far. Strip away from us our our anger and our prejudice. Strip away from us our fears of stuff and things and people. And set our affections upon you. Help us to remember that you're a God of compassion. You're a God that is sovereign and you are a God that is so patient. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.